2: on the Bechdel cast the questions asked if movies have women in them are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands or do they have individualism the patriarchy's effing vast start changing it with the Bechdel cast
3: Jamie Caitlin oh what a day what a lovely day witness me it's my birthday (laughs) I'm oh my god (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I get it. I understand. What a lovely day for it to be my birthday.
2: (laughs) It's always a lovely day for it to be
3: your birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. I
2: love you. What a day this is going to be. I mean, this is we're not recording this on your birthday, but I feel like it's good. We your birthday is tends to be kind of an event.
3: Yeah, I really think that I'm a special person and really think that my birthday is a special no. day for uh, everyone and not just me.
2: Well, you're not a huge holiday person. So this is right. your holiday. Yes. Like it, it all makes sense. Um, I, I think I... Maybe I gave you or I didn't give it to you because I haven't. Mm. But a part of your birthday present, the spirit channeled survivor of Titanic book yep. I have to give to you. Mm-hmm. Amongst other things that will be revealed at a <sighs> later time. Happy birthday. Thank you. <gasps> and we're doing a special I'm I'm excited, uh I'm excited for this episode. I've been kind of nervous for it because anytime we go into an episode where there's like a lot of you're like there's just so much. There's a lot, but yeah. But I'm glad. I'm glad that we're doing this. Here we are. Same. Back in heaven where we live.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and and what a lovely day it is. Uh, this Truly. Is the Bechtel cast. My name is Caitlin Durante. My name is Jamie Loftus. And this is our podcast where we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens. Using the Bechdel test simply as a jumping off point for our discussion. Yeah. Jamie, mm-hmm. I need you to tell me on this uh, lovely day uh-huh. <laughs> what the Bechdel test is. It's your birthday. I'm Thank happy you. to oblige.
2: Thanks. So the Bechdel test, sometimes called the Bechdel-Wallace test, is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Allison Bechdel. There's many permutations of this test. However, the one we use requires the following, that there be two characters of a marginalized <laughs> gender. Well, sometimes I, sometimes my one of my synapses collapses mid-sentence. <laughs> Uh, This is like our audition (laughs) monologue that we do every week.
3: Right. Because it's like, it feels so like, it feels very rehearsed sometimes when I'm saying it because I just like have it so committed to memory that I'm like, wait, did I like accidentally forget one of the... That's it's just it's a whole thing.
2: Every time I trip myself up because I'm I I worry because it's so ingrained in my brain that I'm Mm going to switch a word and neither of us will notice because we're just like, yep, that's the monologue. (laughs) This is our tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. Wait, what is that a reference to? I don't think that this doesn't pass the back because this is it's a Shakespeare passage. Everyone in wow. my high school had to memorize this one Shakespeare passage. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace, mm. till the last syllable of recorded time. I already fucked it up, and all the <laughs> Shakespeare heads are gonna be like, "You fucking doofus!" <laughs> as as I was saying, mm-hmm. on your birthday, no less <laughs>
3: of all days, uh- <laughs> of all days so this also isn't coming out Ooh. on my birthday i don't think okay because my birthday is a tuesday and we always release episodes on, on thursday. thursday but who knows maybe we'll mix it up this week i don't know look you'll find out when you're listening
2: you'll know and then if you're listening to it not the day it comes out which is probably a lot of people you'll be like shut up tell us what the Bechdel test is <laughs> uh-huh. well it's this <laughs> here's the one we use <laughs> now i'm really gonna fuck it up we were require- calling <laughs> We require that we, that our version, you've gotta have two <laughs> characters of a marginalized gender with names speak to each other about something other than a man for more than two lines of dialogue. And these lines of dialogue should be narratively significant in some way, shape or form, not mm-hmm. throw away dialogue for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. And, uh You know, because of the movie we're covering, (laughs) it's smooth sailing, baby. Not a problem. It's not a problem. From the director that brought you Babe, Pig in the City.
3: And Happy Feet 1 and 2. Oh my gosh, I I found...
2: Someone took it upon themselves to write a passage on scholarly journal Wikipedia Mm. about the thematic similarities between Happy Feet and Mad Max Fury Road, and it actually completely scans. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
3: I talked about Happy Feet on Blank Check. Yeah. And I pointed out, Mm -hmm. speaking of being scholarly, Mm. in a very scholarly way, I pointed out some of those same similarities. So,
2: an environmental family story.
3: Mhm. Also like Hugo Weaving plays this penguin that has this like Love that extremist sentence. religious dogma that he's like trying to foist on to the other penguins in the penguin community, huh? Much like a Morton Joe is like foisting no. this like extremist religious dogma. Look, there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between Mad Max Fury Road and Happy Feet is all we're saying. I love our canonical pronunciation of Happy Feet. Happy Feet.
2: Happy Feet. <laughs> uh, there's, it reminds me of, there's this one acting choice that Tom from Succession makes, and I believe that that's his Christian name. Um <laughs> Where every time he says he's talking about how Shiv cheated on him on, on their wedding night, he says, uh-huh. On our wedding night And I'm like, Why is he <laughs> saying it like that? But he says it like it, it has he keeps saying wedding night and it drives mm. me it drives me horny. I love it.
3: <laughs> Okie dokie. Wedding night. Happy feet. Wedding
2: night, happy feet. I'm like, is that Shakespeare?
3: No. That's maybe iambic pentameter. No, it's not. I I, you know It's something though. It's something though. It's you know,
2: (laughs) I trust. I trust, I believe, that it's gotta be something. And today we're talking about Mad Max Fury Road. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Magic Mike and Mad Max in the same couple of I mean, we're really describing these these monosyllabic men aren't we
3: yeah so i guess the um magical michael version of mad max would be like (laughs) maddening maxwell that doesn't quite work but
2: yeah i guess i guess so also steven soderbergh uh loves this movie i found so many quotes from him being like woohoo i was like wow magic mike mad (laughs) max it's all coming together do you think that he loved the original Mad Max so much that he he subconsciously channeled it into Magic Mike.
3: Maybe. I think we should go with this theory. Okay. No one
2: correct us. It's Caitlin's <laughs> birthday. We can't be wrong today. Exactly. I can be wrong. You can yell at me. Except in August. Yeah, but
3: I am infallible today. You're
2: okay. untouchable. You should say something really <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> uh all right, Caitlin. Okay, so oh, oh and, and last uh, last thing, if if you're if you've been with us since the beginning, almost six years at this point, mm-hmm. and you're like, hey, didn't these ladies cover Mad Max at some point? Yes, we did. It was extremely early in the podcast,
3: one of our first episodes.
2: Yeah, and there was a couple early episodes that of uh, about a year and a half ago. We're like, we want to redo these. We've learned so much through doing this show and Mm -hmm. just through the general evolution of uh, society and time. And Mm -hmm. this was one of the movies we've always been wanting to redo. So it's not in your imagination, but this is the all new and improved Mad Max Fury Road
3: episode. Exactly. We are now better equipped to tackle the discussion that we want to have around this movie, especially because it has, since recording that original episode, it has become one of my favorite movies of all time, hence also why we're doing it for my birthday. And since it came out, because we covered it like about a year after it came out, I think. Roughly. Something like that. Maybe less. Yeah. Because it came out in... 2015. Yeah, this summer of 2015. And then we mm-hmm. recorded the episode early 2016. It was not that long after.
2: And, and now it's, you know, considered... For many, the greatest action movie ever made. So we can talk about how the uh, perception of the movie has um, evolved as well. Certainly. There's there's just,
3: there's,
2: you know, the passage of time. And can I just say, mm. from 2016 to now, no notes, societally.
3: So, um, I don't think anything has really
2: happened. No, we're living in the greatest <laughs> timeline. Um, So, so... Yeah. Caitlin, Mm -hmm. the birthday gal, uh, please do tell me, what is your history with Mad Max Fury Road?
3: I did see it in theaters Mm -hmm. when it came out, I think probably opening weekend. I was pretty jazzed to see it based on the trailers and the marketing and everything. And I was blown away Mm -hmm. and have only... Developed a greater appreciation for it more and more as time goes on. Mm-hmm. I would say I've seen this movie somewhere between like 60 and 70 times. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I
2: didn't know it was that serious. Wow. It is. Wow, it's learning. pretty
3: serious Um, because it's one of those movies that I am never not in the mood to watch. So like I am just I will throw it on. It's my plane movie, so anytime I Ooh, yeah am on a flight, uh-huh. I will watch this movie mm-hmm. both times. So on my journey to the place and then on my journey back home, mm-hmm. I watch it on dates all the time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, an emphasis on all the time because I'm always going on dates having a good brag. I
2: you you do go on many <laughs> successful dates and I
3: I do I would not call them successful but uh, sorry go ahead it's your
2: birthday I'm 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 fluffing <laughs> I'm fluffing it's your birthday
3: <laughs> true 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 yes no I'm so good at dating I'm so good at finding people I'm compatible with it's an incredible phenomenon it's you can't stop falling in love The
2: it is good to have go-to date movies I my no the jinx <laughs> I was gonna say it's the jinx the jinx I've got to change mm-hmm. it I've got to grow as a person but that's one way where I very firmly
3: have not that's okay that's okay you know sometimes it's fine to be absolutely static
2: here's in some ways it is comforting mm-hmm. but in yeah. that one I would say maybe it could it could go um, <laughs> Caitlin, were you, f- did you ever watch the original Mad Max movies?
3: Yes. So I have seen yeah. all of those, but I have no real attachment to them, especially compared to the attachment I feel okay. to this movie. That was uh, what I was curious yeah. about
2: because it seems like there's a few camps of fans of this franchise, some of whom are like this movie and then some of whom are like all all Max all Cannon. The,
3: yeah. Um, no, I am not thrilled with any of the others, mainly that Mel Gibson, I and mean, I simply cannot stomach so watching anything he's in except for Chicken Run, which you only hear his voice, so I give it a pass. And it
2: still feels bad. Yeah. And it still <laughs> feels bad. Um, yeah, I do. I mean, there, we'll, we'll be talking about him plenty today, but I do think that uh, George Miller is a very interesting case of a filmmaker who has demonstrated uh, a lot of growth Mm -hmm. throughout his career. Although there's a lot that I learned about the production of this movie that sounded uh, not great. We'll get there. Yeah, for sure. Um,
3: But it's really only this installment, Fury Road, that I have any attachment to so much that I got a tattoo of the war rig that Furiosa drives on my arm, And that, I think, concludes my relationship with this movie. (laughs) Jamie, what is your history and relationship with Mad Max Fury Road?
2: Um, I had only seen it uh, to prepare for the first time we did this episode Mm -hmm. about five years ago. That was the first time I saw it. Didn't like it the first time. This was in a phase of life where I was deeply against any aesthetic I perceived to be remotely steampunk. Look... (laughs) Uh-huh. i was in my early 20s i was just I, I i i had a hot take i clung to it i don't stand by it mm. uh i will say speaking of growth speaking of growth i real i've seen this movie a couple times in the interim um mm-hmm. i think at least once with you yeah but i like it more and more each time i see it i feel like it it has it has a lot to do with just like me understanding more about movies than I did six years ago, Mm -hmm. Uh, understanding more about feminism than Mm -hmm. I did six years ago, Mm -hmm. understanding more about uh, environmentalism than I did six years ago, Mm -hmm. and also like having a growing appreciation for action movies. It's still not my genre. I don't think it'll ever be my genre. However, I feel like I can now appreciate a well-crafted, paste looking ass action movie. So Hell I've yeah. really grown to uh, really love this movie and I and I had a really daunting/ fun time preparing for this episode. There's so much mm-hmm. to go through. there's so much to talk about. It's very dense, but it doesn't feel dense. It's such right. I mean it's I, I, I guess it's like it's so dystopian that it, it's a dystopian romp.
3: It is a romp, but it is—it's it like is, a serious. But it's it, yeah, it's it, upsetting. <laughs> I think you—you you nailed it. It's—it's it's not tonally light. No. Yet it is still a romp. But it is literally never not moving. That's the beauty of romps. It's a spectrum, and it's very inclusive. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In this essay, we will. Um, no, but for real, probably for a couple
2: hours. <laughs> right. So that's my history. Uh, used to be a hater, and then I got educated and I grew up, literally, is how I would describe what happened. That warms my heart. Is it my favorite George Miller movie? It is not. That is still babe. Babe. But this is a close second because Happy Feet. Mm-hmm. is one of, we I think we've maybe talked about this in our babe episode, which is on the Matreon. Mm-hmm. and I think it's quite a good episode. You did an incredible segment on how movie animals are treated. Thank you in that episode. But uh, in any case, Happy Feet is one of those movies that I know I have seen at least three times, and I could not tell you a single thing that happens in the movie. i I have the same issue with a lot of Wes Anderson movies where I'm like, mm-hmm. I remember how it looks. I remember how I was feeling couldn't tell you what happened
3: i could try to tell you and this isn't the time or place uh because i've seen it a couple times Mm -hmm. to prepare for the blank check episode i did Mm -hmm. and i think i'm in the minority because i think that movie absolutely sucks shit
2: no i think (laughs) that people didn't I don't think that there's well it was
3: like nominated for Academy Awards like I think it it was like but people responded to it well like audiences was it well
2: reviewed it was well reviewed bizarre I mean I understand why kids might like Mm. anyways you know what ultimately if Happy Feet hadn't performed well at the box office and critically we wouldn't have Mad Max Fury Road now would we or so I read that is true Yeah, so, you know, no matter where you fall on the happy feet, criticism, um, (laughs) Mm enjoyment-o-meter, you gotta hand it, you gotta foot it to the happy feet, because if that boring-ass movie I can't remember with Elijah Wood Penguin, am Mm -hmm. I correct? Correct, correct. You know, then we wouldn't have this awesome movie we're talking about today. True. Should we start talking about it?
3: Yeah, let me do the recap, shall I? Let's do it. So we hear some sound bites at the very beginning about water and fossil fuel shortages. We hear about wars that have happened as a result. We hear about like nuclear skirmish. We see a barren wasteland Mm -hmm. and then we meet Max Rokotansky, played by Tom Hardy. We get some voiceover from him in which he says that the only thing he cares about is survival. Max is then pursued by war boys mm-hmm. who capture him and take him to this place called the citadel which is ruled by Immorton joe played by hugh keys burn mm-hmm. he is this tyrannical leader who controls access to people's food and water in the citadel right he has a bunch of people working for him many of whom are his offspring
2: yeah others on the
3: wikipedia page someone it might not be true by the
2: time you listen to this episode but someone keeps referring to one of the sons as his large adult son, um, <laughs> would that be Rictus Erectus? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Rictus Erectus is repeatedly referred to as a large adult son and uh, <laughs> an accurate description of the character. Yeah, it is hard to tell because of how they're at this, they're stylized. You're like, oh, which which son is which? It's confusing. Sure, but that's the point. That
3: yeah. Others are people that he has either enslaved or manipulated via this religious ideology where a Morton Joe has convinced them that he is their redeemer and they will ride with him eternal on the highways of Valhalla. It is all I mean and I do I do appreciate the use of like anytime
2: there's like Norse mythology popping up you're like hmm this is probably not a character I'm going to end up rooting for. (sighs) Right. Which is an interesting story convention that pops up all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Then we meet Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron. She seems to be pretty high up in Immortan Joe's ranks. She drives a war rig, which she boards to head to Gastown and the Bullet Farm, two neighboring communities that barter and trade with the Citadel. Uh, we will soon find out that they have similar tyrannical warmongering leadership Mm -hmm. as furiosa is driving she veers off course we are not sure why at first but then we realize that in her war rig furiosa has immorten joe's wives aka women who he has enslaved and who he assaults in order to bear him healthy offspring and Furiosa is attempting to rescue these women and escape once and for all. And they are headed to somewhere called the Green Place. Yes. When Morton Joe discovers this, he sends out a bunch of his war boys in their vehicles to chase after and catch Furiosa. And bring the wives back.
2: Again, I just love uh, the simple turn of phrase that is war boys. Because that's how I would describe them mm-hmm. if I didn't know what they were called. And that is just what they're
3: called. <laughs> that is just what they're called. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this movie is perhaps not subtle. No. Uh, but,
2: <laughs> but you know, that's But that's not we,
3: why we go to action movies. We don't go to action movies for the subtlety. No. I go
2: to babe for subtlety. And I... Th- <laughs> And I kind of mean that.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So one such war boy is Nux, played by Nicholas Holt, Mm -hmm. who Max has been rigged up to as Mm -hmm. Nux's blood bag because a lot of the war boys are dying from radiation poisoning and they need regular blood transfusions.
2: Right. So you immediately see how characters of all genders are reduced to the basic functions
3: of their body by... Mm -hmm. Immortan Joe at all right exactly so Nux wanting to participate in this chase to catch Furiosa Mm -hmm. he takes Max along with him in this pursuit Mm -hmm. Uh, then we get the first big chase of the movie where Furiosa manages to lose Immortan Joe and his war party in a sandstorm but afterward max finds her and the other women the wives who are splendid angherid played by rosie huntington whiteley okay transformers oh that's the only other thing i know she was in got it yep capable played by riley Mm keogh who i've seen this movie a bazillion times and when i was watching zola to prep for that episode did not realize it was the same actor. I mean, the power of a red dye job cannot be <laughs>
2: understated. I think she's great in this movie, too.
3: Agree, yeah. I mean, I think all the, all the wives are, are very talented. For sure. We've also got Toast the Knowing, played by Zoe Kravitz. We've got... Great name. Mm-hmm. Cheeto the Fragile, played by Courtney Eaton. And we've Weird got... Weird name. <laughs> and we've got The Dag, played by Abby Lee. Mm-hmm. so when Max comes upon them he and Furiosa fight and Max attempts to hijack Furiosa's war rig and leave all of the women to be recaptured by a Morton Joe but Furiosa has kill switches enabled on the rig so Max cannot drive away and she bargains with him and then they all set off together with Furiosa driving but Max holding them all hostage mm-hmm. Then Furiosa drives to this canyon where she has bartered for safe passage through, but Morton Joe has caught back up to them, along with the people eater of Gastown and the bullet farmer from, you'll never guess this, the bullet farm.
2: I do appreciate, yeah, again, just with the simplicity of the names, Mm -hmm. it's helpful. There's a lot of characters (laughs) and I just like how he names them by what they do or sort of how you would kind of describe what you think they might do. Right. Yep. (laughs) It's helpful. It is. So. Wait, quick question.
3: Yeah. Is it Nicholas Holt that you have a huge crush on? I do have an enormous crush on Nicholas
2: Holt. It is true. Okay, I was just checking in about that. Uh huh. Thank you for confirming. You're welcome. And take it away.
3: <laughs> Happy birthday. <I> a <laughs> love a little aside where we simply cannot pass the Bechtel test. Look, we're no one's asking <laughs> life to pass the Bechtel test. Mm, true. Although
2: it would, you know, could be it would probably be a generally better, better experience. Life. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's a quick detour to be horny about Nicholas Holt. Sure. Okay. No further questions. <laughs> I also didn't realize that Nux is Nicholas Holt because, I mean, it's a, it's a really good performance, but it could be any person in there.
3: A-, a lot of his recognizable features are... They're all kind of like buff-looking,
2: Slenderman,
3: Babadook types. <laughs> <laughs> the war boys. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, the war boys are yeah, just a pack of slendermans and Baba
3: Dukes. <laughs> yes. Okay, so with these three war parties in hot pursuit, everything goes wrong in this like situation where Furiosa is trying to barter for safe passage. Mm-hmm. There's another big chase. This one is my favorite one of the movie, by the way, during and after which Max and Furiosa go from being enemies where he is holding her hostage to Mm -hmm. allies who are working together,
2: who are slowly realizing that they have not too dissimilar
3: backstory. Sure. Also during this chase, Angharid is killed or maybe at this point just fatally wounded which slows down Immortan Joe for a while because she was his favorite, and she also had a nearly full-term pregnancy, and he is concerned about the baby surviving. So Mm -hmm. this allows Furiosa Max and the rest of the wives to get away, and they drive onward toward the Green Place. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Capable discovers Nux on the rig. He's having a crisis... Uh, The two of them become friends, and he switches sides and becomes an ally to Furiosa and Friends. Mm. (laughs) I would watch that. I would watch that children's show. (laughs) That spinoff. Yes. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Immortan Joe and the war parties are not far behind again, and they're all driving through this, like, marshy, swampy area. Everyone is getting stuck. Our friends get unstuck with Nux's help and they continue onward. And eventually, they come upon the Volvolini, this band of women who live in the middle of the desert. Again, it's the clan. uh,
2: Not a very subtle (laughs) naming convention. I know. I was
3: like, are they saying Volvolini? And it's it's Volvolini? It
2: does sound like it's vagina pasta that is (laughs) being described. For me, yeah. for me, it sounded
3: like a plate full of... Vagina vagine. pasta, yeah. I don't disagree. They are also known as the Many Mothers. Mm-hmm. They are the clan that Furiosa used to be a part of until she was kidnapped, stolen, and taken to the Citadel. Mm-hmm. They tell Furiosa that the green place no longer exists. Earth had become too sour, the water became poison, nothing would grow... So they had to get out of there. Not a relatable thing at all.
2: There are, I mean, yeah. And each time you watch this movie, you're just like, oof. Had you told me that in six years, perhaps not the aesthetic, Mm. but the water wars,
3: they're a coming baby. People, and maybe I need to stop doing this, or maybe I need to do it more. But anytime someone- where is this going? (laughs) Anytime someone refers to how things might be in like 20 or 30 years from now, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's plausible. Assuming we're not all killing each other during the water wars. And then they're like, oh, um, uh, yep. That's, but now it's it to make people a little bit say, nervous.
2: <laughs> but now people are like, oh no, do you have
3: information? <laughs> so that is, I think a feasible reality.
2: I think now more than ever, keep plugging the water wars. People are going to (laughs) love to hear you say, I told you so all the time. The Water wars are on. And then they'll shoot me in my face and then, and then steal my water. Yeah. I mean, if, if this Australian documentary is to be believed, (laughs)
3: yes, (laughs) it's very possible. Yeah. Okay. Furiosa learning about the green place no longer existing is absolutely devastating to her especially because there is now no place that she can kind of find this redemption. She was looking for in terms of like bringing these women to safety and Mm -hmm. just having a place where they can stay and survive. Mm -hmm. And then Max is like, well, wait a minute. What if we go back to the Citadel and take control while it's undefended? Sorry. I'm going to let that loud motorcycle pass. Is that a Morton Joe? (laughs) So they turn around and charge back toward the Citadel. Mm-hmm. Morton Joe realizes what they're doing, so he goes after them. Again, there's one last, you know, big act three climactic chase. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ups and downs. We've got Joe trying to abduct the wives. Furiosa gets stabbed. But then she crawls onto a Morton Joe's vehicle and rips his face off.
2: For, oh, is that a... And and speaking of face off, if you head over to our Patreon this month, there's gonna be some faces coming off. Look. Big month for no face. This
3: is the right. And no face. Because no face in spirited way. <gasps> this is no face may. Wild. <laughs>
2: Oh God! B- best of luck to future us trying to observe this a second time. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's going to be all to be original horror movies. Mm. Although, did you notice there Roku originals? I think Roku originals. I'll put this on wax. I think Roku originals is trying to is trying to do something because that uh, that new Weird Al movie starring Daniel Radcliffe is a Roku original. Is it? Yeah, I did not realize that. I didn't realize they had two nickels to rub together. Turns
3: out they've got Harry Potter money. Wow. Wild. Um, Okay. So Furiosa pulls a face-off, parentheses, 1997, starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. Mm -hmm. She rips Immortan Joe's face off, but she's also very badly injured so max gives her a blood transfusion and he's like by the way my name is max and then she's able to get right back up on her happy feet and,
2: <laughs> and she's looking like a babe she uh she's looking like a babe and she's it, back in the and city she's back in the
3: city dell on her happy feet her happy in feet. the city dell <laughs>
2: And another George Miller movie. Wait, what are the other ones? What a- And the Witches of Eastwick. Oh, and she's got yeah. the wives of Eastwick
3: with her. Oh my word. Wow. Is Lorenzo's oil a George? Lorenzo's L- oil? Yeah, it is. Yeah,
2: what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't need to know. It's fine.
3: Let's never talk about it again. Okay.
2: Not my business. Witches of Eastwick
3: though. Whew. Love it. Check out that episode on our Matreon, everyone. Yeah.
2: We've actually we're kind of like almost Miller completionists. Wow. In a
3: way. Minus Lorenzo's oil. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Max is like, "My name is Max" because earlier he refused and to. And we're tell, like, "We know." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no shit. And then they arrive at the Citadel. Mm-hmm. They gain control of it. Mm-hmm. The implication being Furiosa is the new leader. They unleash water, so the Kraken the, they unleash the Kraken. Yeah, um, the people now have access to the water, and then Max slinks away because he's a lone ranger or whatever. And that is how the movie ends. <laughs> so let's take a quick break and we'll come back to discuss. <laughs> just
1: being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute, without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
4: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect.
3: and we're back where would you
2: like to begin (laughs) uh we i know we both have a truly absurd amount of uh, notes and things to go through where where would you like to begin
3: my birthday friend oh thank you so much i would like to start with i don't know if i want to start with what i really appreciate about the movie or what missteps i think the movie makes because there are certainly some of those.
2: Yes, there certainly are. And I and I mean, I guess let's start there. Because I think that that list, uh, while there's plenty to talk about, is generally shorter. Mm-hmm. So I found some writing about this. But uh, one thing that uh, stood out to me the first time I saw this movie and still does now is um, because this is such broad storytelling uh, and... I find it frustrating because it's like George Miller finds so many ways to subvert a lot of common action tropes and stock character assumptions in this movie. Mm-hmm. But I do think he uses um, atypical bodies to indicate evil mm-hmm. or lack of morality
3: quite
2: a lot in yes. this movie.
3: Yeah, and it's it's a complicated discussion because disability is treated differently or atypical bodies are treated differently based on the character yes because there is a lot of disability visibility in this movie but it is used in different ways so on one hand Mm -hmm. you have furiosa Mm -hmm. the protagonist of the movie Mm -hmm. she has a physical disability her i think left arm has been amputated below the elbow mm-hmm. she uses a mechanical arm mm-hmm. and attention is drawn to this but not in a way that's ever like she's disabled and she's so bitter about it uh the way that disabled characters are often treated in media yeah it's just a part of her character she's presented in the movie as being extremely physically competent She's a strong fighter. She's a skilled marks person and her disability is never shown as impeding her skills in any way. Right.
2: And we also see her with and without the uh, mechanical arm. Yeah. Right. And it's never like, it's never commented on or drawn attention to positive or negative.
3: Like it's just just neutral. This is just an aspect of her character. Mm -hmm. We are given no information about it other than just seeing it visually. We don't know any kind of backstory regarding this, but yeah, it's just presented as one of the many aspects of her character in a way that to me felt like it had a normalizing effect, which I think is one of the goals when it comes to representing disability in movies. Mm -hmm. But then you have a character like, and Morton Joe. Yeah. Who is covered in tumors, presumably having radiation poisoning. He also uses breathing apparatus. Mm. And his disability is used to make him seem like a more formidable opponent, especially like in the way that the mask that he uses just like aesthetically makes him seem scarier. Yeah. I mean, and it's as with a, a
2: lot of these issues in the movie, like it very much has to do with framing and music and like how these atypical qualities are introduced to you mm-hmm. because it's very, I mean, it's like there couldn't be a more villain intro than showing a Morton Joe's body at the at the opening of right. the movie. It's very, very clear how you're supposed to feel about him.
3: It's like movie shorthand for like, look how grotesque he is. Obviously he's the villain. Look at this breathing apparatus he uses. And I guess maybe you could make the argument that like, of course this type of tyrannical dictator would wear something to make him seem more intimidating because his mask is this sort of grotesque, exaggerated thing with like huge teeth. It looks like an animal skull But because there's such a long history of this specific thing in media, of disability being used to make a villain seem more intimidating or scarier or more unattractive, Mm. this choice just feels extremely pointed and completely unnecessary. Yeah,
2: and like beneath what the movie generally tends to be as well.
3: Right. And then like, I remember talking about this on our... Casino Royale episode, hmm. where our guest Kenise Mobley brought up that villains are often given asthma or some other type of like breathing. Yes, I remember this thing. Yeah. And I was like, of course, Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Um, and I was born in it. Isn't that another Tom Hardy
2: character? Bane. Yeah. Bane. God, <laughs> I never. I I don't know Bane's name. I just go, I was born in it, and people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Tom Hardy is so uh, just exhausting to hear about any anecdote with him. You're just mm-hmm. like, I am annoyed and asleep. But boy, you can't take that line read from him, can you? You can't, take, uh, <laughs> you can't take the Bane line, and you can't take my favorite Tom Hardy moment. And then, I mean, I know we are going to discuss him, but mm-hmm. I just, ugh, not I mean, whatever. I method... <laughs> not necessary Mm -hmm. okay which we'll get to because charlize theron had uh just a a great uh moment for like uh stop making my life difficult Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but i do i do really like his line read of like suggesting we go back the way we came like that's Mm -hmm. you know he was born in it baby (laughs) (laughs) there's one thing i know about tom hardy he was born in born in it
3: i will say not only do I not mind him, I would even go so far as to say I like Tom Hardy. Mm-hmm. I may regret saying this at a later date, but for now, I'm cool with Tom Hardy, generally. He's fine. I just have a gener- general dislike of...
2: Uh method actors and Mm -hmm. the uh, stories you tend to hear. He's definitely not the worst of the method actors, but it does sound like he has made the lives of his co-stars very unpleasant at different times in his career. uh, Um, And of course, when we say uh, Tom Hardy was born into it, uh, we mean that he was born into a wealthy arts family. He was born in it. Um, And that's why he Mm -hmm. uh, gets to be a professional actor. Mm -hmm. He was born in it. I didn't realize that. Yeah. His his dad's name is Chips Hardy question mark. Chips awesome plural? Yeah, like the ones in the bags. <laughs> Chips wow. Hardy. Okay.
3: Anyways. Um back to this discussion. Okay, so there's another layer of this where a Morton Joe and one of his sons, Rictus Erectus, aka his large adult son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who also uses an oxygen tank to help him breathe. Both of their breathing apparatuses are used to either kill or injure those characters in some way Mm -hmm. where Furiosa rips Joe's mask off and also his face off. Mm. starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta 1997. Ever heard of it? And Max uses Rictus Erectus*'s oxygen tank to beat him in the face. Yes. So it's just another layer of like not only are disabilities being used to further villainize these villains, but then also the apparatus they use because of their disability is then used against them violently, mm. which feels especially pointed So there's that. Um, There are other characters like the people eater, you know, has severe inflammation in his feet. Mm -hmm. I think that and his obesity are his traits that are intended to make him seem grotesque and more villainous. Mm -hmm. Then you see a lot of disability in the people who live in the citadel Mm -hmm. some are citizens who i think you can assume survived nuclear war Mm -hmm. some are probably just dealing with malnutrition Mm. it mostly feels like these characters are just used as a part of the world building which because we know nothing about them and they're just sort of scenery it feels like pointed set dressing and yeah yeah sort of similar is the character of corpus colossus played by Quentin Kennahan, who mm-hmm. is one of Morton Joes' sons. We do not learn anything about that character. No. And just in general, none of these disabled characters or characters with atypical bodies are given any focus in the story. All of the major characters, with the exception of Furiosa And you could argue Nux, who is also affected by radiation poisoning. Mm -hmm. All the rest of the main characters that we are rooting for are able-bodied. They are very attractive by Western beauty standards. And even, I would argue, Furiosa and Nux are kind of able to pass as able-bodied, especially compared to the characters like Morton Joe and the People Eater where again their disabilities are are used to further villainize them, or it's characters who we learn nothing about. Which I do also
2: feel has to do, at least in part, with how the characters are framed. Where mm-hmm. Furiosa like Furiosa has a mechanical arm, but it's not brought to your attention explicitly all the time in the way that when a villain has a disability
3: your eye is constantly being very very intentionally drawn to it right yeah and of course of these main characters like furiosa nox and morton joe and the people leader they are played by actors who are not disabled mm-hmm. so that's something that we come upon again and again all the time yeah yeah not great <laughs> not great at all simply not great sort of related to the discussion of bodies mm-hmm. one of the things that i it took me a while for this to click for me and i'm honestly embarrassed about how uh, long it took but mm-hmm. so The women, the quote unquote wives that Furiosa is trying to bring to safety, Mm -hmm. are all very traditionally attractive by Western beauty standards. That didn't take, that's not the thing that took me a while to figure out. That I obviously (laughs) noticed. No, it's actually quite obvious, yes. (laughs) It's very, very obvious. Zoe Kravitz Um, (laughs) is there. Zoe Kravitz, like several professional models are among. Yeah the people cast in those roles Mm -hmm. the thing that i was like wait a minute so we see a group of women at the citadel Mm -hmm. who are again used for the very kind of like basic function of like bodily function yeah they're they're hooked up to breast pumps right they're basically treated like milk cows and they are all fat women Mm -hmm. who I think Western beauty standards would consider not attractive. And again,
2: with the way that the camera is framing and drawing your eye, it seems like the movie is
3: not pushing against that in any way. Right. Yeah. So the thing that I was like, what the fuck? Furiosa doesn't try to save them? Mm -hmm. Like for unknown reasons? What the hell? Like, were they not hot enough to save? Were they not considered... What's the deal with that? Why were they not among the women that... God, I mean... Because they're, you know... I I always want to give
2: Furiosa the benefit of the doubt. She makes it seem... (laughs) She makes it seem as if she's done stuff like this before. Perhaps that is a separate
3: trip. We're also told that the wives explicitly asked her to help them do this. She didn't take them, they begged her to go, says Miss Giddy. Yeah. But yeah, I,
2: I also picked up on that as well, where it's, I, again, most of the characters, or many of the characters who are not, you know, classically Western beauty standard, slim, and, and look a very particular way, like, they are treated as set dressing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is very much, yeah, how how those characters are presented
3: yeah I just I would have liked a version of this story where even if it was the the wives there's got to be a better name for them <laughs> but even if it was their idea for Furiosa to take them away from the citadel mm-hmm. couldn't Furiosa be like hey hey you guys in like the milking room I'm I'm going on a trip I'm saving some people wanna come come on yeah <laughs> At very least, I guess that they
2: uh, they along with the rest of the Citadel are, are liberated at the end of the flim.
3: Yeah, we do see another shot of them at the end. Yes, yes. They, are, they
2: are. They are freed.
3: But I, I think,
2: yeah, the larger point here is that there are no fat characters who are heroes who we are rooting for. Exactly. Which is just kind of another way in which this very broad movie does not push back on very well-worn movie media stereotypes right in a way that would have been so simple not to like that true like there's no reason that one of the i don't know what else uh, one of the his wives but they are being sex trafficked i mean what Mm -hmm. one of the what should we let's let's come up with something right now one of the women in beige Uh, the women, the women in gauze. <laughs> yeah, one of the. I mean, one of there's there's no reason one of the gauzy gauzy women um, <laughs> couldn't uh, couldn't have been a fat woman. There's just there's just mm-hmm. simply no reason. Yeah, yeah. There's it's it, it's interesting because yeah, this movie is less than ten years old, but already you're like, oh, I mean, based on how we are needing to discuss it a second time, you can already you you can still pick up on things that were dated, right at that time that. Probably were not commented on extensively at the time. But it True. does. Uh, there's been so much written about this movie when it came out, but also just over the years. It's interesting to kind of watch how people's views on how bodies are treated in this movie. Right. I wanted to quickly go back to the Tom Hardy thing
3: because mm, yes. there is. Have you read about the confrontation between him and Charlize Theron? Not extensively. So please feel free to fill me in.
2: Okay. So this is not i mean i didn't know very much about the production of this movie mm-hmm. it sounded like an absolutely hellacious shoot that went on for like nine months yeah in the desert riley keogh got hypothermia yeah george miller says there was a there's two oral history pieces i read about this movie one came out in 2020 one came out earlier this year Mm -hmm. New York Times and I think Vanity Fair respectively but yeah in the New York Times one yeah the actors it is kind of interesting I feel like you I'm trying to think of other I mean I guess that you could use a Titanic parable here too because literally Uh hypothermia Mm -hmm. uh, or I guess in Kate Winslet's case pneumonia but Mm. you know a movie that was extremely difficult to shoot that sounds like it was absolute torture for the actors at at different points yeah yeah that later on because the movie was a huge success and was a classic they're kind of like yeah that wasn't great but i'm glad the movie was a hit you know like right. it's a little but but you know it sounded like this was a um a shoot where everyone slowly lost their grip on reality mm-hmm. cast and crew there were several cases of actors getting sick like I just said Riley Keough got hypothermia because it was so cold shooting in the desert at night the actors are shooting in the middle of the desert and they're not because of their costumes they're literally in in gauze for a lot of it and Mm -hmm. so there's not a lot of protection from the elements Uh, a lot of stories like that and then there was also uh, some onset tension between Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy, which is expanded a little more in the Vanity Fair article. So I guess that uh, Charlize Theron had recently had a baby when she was shooting this movie. Mm. And so she's I get she has like a reputation for being very professional, shows up on time, expects to be released at the correct time mm-hmm. as is her right. That's union shit. Yeah. Tom Hardy is known to be a method guy, known to never show up on time, known to be a little bit combative at times and he and Charlize, well, they simply did not like each other. Mm. And there is a story in which Charlize Theron was there on time, sitting in the war rig, waiting for Magical Michael to show up.
3: <laughs> magical Tom Maxwell, Hardy.
2: yeah. So he he's not showing up. This was day five trillion of shooting in the war rig. Mm-hmm. At this point, the women in gauze had openly talked shit about Tom Hardy in front of them. Everyone was sick of him. Yeah. Then he gets there late. Charlie's Theron yells at him in front of everybody she says and i quote find the fucking cunt a hundred thousand dollars for every minute he's held up this crew how -hmm. disrespectful you are love that for her and then tom hardy physically charges at her (gasps) and uh you know says what did you say to me and like lit, <sighs> like physically charges at her she uh felt the need to request a producer for protection for the remainder of the shoot because things got so tense between the two of them it sounds <sighs> like they have since reconciled mm. but I guess make of that story what you will, but uh, I don't think Tom Hardy comes off particularly well in it.
3: Certainly not, and I take back what I said about him. Method actors truly, I mean,
2: I just, I, I don't know. My crush Will Poulter said it best when he said something like, I don't like it. Uh, yeah
3: what it it was a good quote we should look it up wait let's
2: find it i'm because i love quoting as you know i'm always happy to google will poulter it's easy for me to do oh he said it's quote an excuse for inappropriate behavior unquote yeah so that's that um should we take a quick
3: break and then come back and talk some more yeah let's take a quick break It's
1: just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under 17, 90 Without Parent, only in theaters, May 17th. This is it.
4: Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect.
3: and we're back we are back where would you like to go from here caitlin oh my goodness i would like to talk about how the movie handles race let's do which that. is another thing that is not particularly good yeah this has been discussed before we're not really pointing out anything new but, but for the sake of a complete episode exactly the movie largely centers white people, which has been pointed out as being especially strange in this context of like the world that this movie exists within. Mm-hmm. I want to pull a quote from, and then also shout out a book, which is a series of... Four different essays, all written by scholars. Oh, uh, <laughs> ever heard of them? <laughs> the book is entitled Furious Feminism's Alternate Routes on Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. There is a quote I will pull from the essay entitled Just a Warrior at the End of the World by Barbara Gurr. This writer put it better than I think I could, so quote max's story like so many in dystopian fiction begs the question why do only white people survive the apocalypse Mm -hmm. the absence of indigenous bodies indeed of people of color generally throughout all four films meaning all four of the mad max films Mm -hmm. reflect the white supremacist arc of settler colonialism in australia the presumed geography of the film Mm -hmm. and elsewhere and furthers a narrative that seemingly relies on gender but is always already raced as only certain bodies are visible, only certain bodies are active, only certain bodies are worthy of survival after the end of the world end quote mm. this is not to say that there are no people of color in the movie and in the main cast mm-hmm. uh, because of course you have Zoe Kravitz, you also have the character of cheeto the fragile who is played by courtney eaton who is maori and cook islander Mm -hmm. also shout out to the ali nadi test because this character passes the ali nadi test Mm -hmm. this test examines representation of indigenous women in media Mm -hmm. in order to pass a character must be an indigenous or aboriginal woman who is a main character Mm -hmm. she must not fall in love with a white man and she is not raped or murdered at any point in the story and according to the actor courtney eaton cheeto is the only one of the wives who was not assaulted by morton joe or anyone else so
2: Okay, that's good
3: to, that's good to. No, we'll we'll get to this. I I was very
2: fascinated at how those uh, actors got to develop their own characters' history mm. and story and that kind of collaborative process. We'll mm-hmm. we'll get there. But but yes, I I am I'm happy to hear that that Cheeto passes the Alleyneady test. I do wish that characters that pass the Alleyneady test were more prominent in the story. Mm-hmm. She certainly has important moments in the story, but she's you know, I think kind of one of the less prominent of the of the women in Gauze.
3: And when you are just sort of like isolating screen time and just kind of like narrative significance, mm-hmm. definitely, Max and Furiosa are the two most prominent characters. They, for sure, you know, share a dual protagonist situation. All this to say that the majority of the characters that we are rooting for, are white characters. Yeah, I mean, our two, the,
2: the two lead characters. Yeah, Or I know that, God, I've read so much of like, actually, Max is a deuteragonist, <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, with all due respect, shut the fuck up. Um, I don't wanna hear it. Mm. But yes, the, our, two, our two leading characters who were supposed to, I mean, the two people on the fucking poster are cis white movie stars yes and thank you thank you for sharing that quote because now we've covered um several i think australian movies where where this issue has been brought up yeah um yeah what shall we address next so i wanted to just this is another production note but since it came up via uh learning a little bit about courtney eaton's um character backstory Mm -hmm. something i thought was uh, quite interesting was and again just like a, an interesting showing of uh, growth in a director over time is that George Miller uh, brought in a consultant mm-hmm. to uh, help it seems like primarily Charlize Theron and the women in gauze developed their characters I don't know if the uh the what vol I was gonna say Volvioni, so there you go <laughs> <laughs> so like a, a damn Mario character. Uh, okay yeah I, I, I don't know about um, the women in, in that area of the story, but George so George Miller brought in uh, Eve Ensler, who mm-hmm. most famously wrote the Vagina Monologues. Which is very dated in many ways. Uh, you know, we're we're not caping for the vagina monologues, but she's sure. she's uh, been a feminist activist for a very long time, and uh, he specifically requested that she be available to the actors who were playing um, women who were being sex trafficked and had experienced quite a bit of trauma because mm-hmm. Eve Ensler has a lot of experience working with survivors of sex trafficking Mm -hmm. and i guess that that is like what she was doing when george miller originally reached out right and so what they did in a way that i think seems to have um again this is like we we cannot speak from personal experience here but it seems to generally elevate those characters and i feel like those characters are, are generally treated with respect and you see you know i I, even through the five uh women in gauze you (laughs) see a bunch of different um reactions to like they're all distinct characters in a way that i think if the movie was made 20 years before probably wouldn't have been true right um not only do they have different skills and and strengths where Mm -hmm. and I I'm not gonna get the names right so Zoe Kravitz for example (laughs) can handle a gun Mm -hmm. like she knows her shit in that department Riley Keough really strongly wants to go back for Rosie Huntington-Whiteley they have different opinions on what they should do with Knox like there there's Mm -hmm. constantly disagreement and even though many of them have experienced similar kinds of abuse, they are all interpreting it very, very differently, which I thought was effective and Mm -hmm. um, done kind of seamlessly with the story. But I wanted to share a quote uh, from Eve Ensler in that New York Times Mm -hmm. oral history, just to give some insight into how they did it. Yeah. So she says, quote, it was really surprising for me. George would send me pieces of the script for feedback. And we began to get into a dialogue about the women who were going to play these sex slaves and how they would know what that lived experience was. Eventually, he invited me to Namibia, which is where the movie was shot, mm-hmm. uh, to spend time with them in workshops. And my contribution was really to help those actresses become confident in that world. I think it was a really radical thing that he asked me to do that, unquote. Um I'm generally inclined to agree, and it seems like the actors got a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were asked to write their own backstories, essentially, Mm -hmm. write letters in character to their abusers. I mean, it just seemed like a very immersive way of, of building characters, and I do appreciate when a male auteur such as George Miller knows when he's out of his depth and brings someone in is not out of their depth Mm -hmm. and i'm sure that those actors are more comfortable talking to eve ensler than they would be talking to george miller about this topic um so i just thought that was a good creative choice whereas um riley keogh uh, being left vulnerable enough to get hypothermia was perhaps not as good (sighs) yeah yeah Um, the (laughs) the shoot of this movie just sounded absolutely fucking
3: wild and you can tell by watching it cuz so I many mean, of yeah. the so many i mean they're on location it's 90% practical effects in a desert in winter. Yeah. Sand blowing in everyone's faces and being exposed to the elements and I mean, I don't even mean to like be
2: too hard on George Miller specifically with that. I mean, the buck stops with him because he's the director, but yeah. it but like 9 months in the fucking desert with a gigantic crew and you're all doing practical effects of some of the wildest shit i've ever seen in my life it's a miracle
3: that everyone lived um (laughs) which is also what one of the things that steven soderbergh said he's like how did 100 people not die in the movie
2: right so so not to uh you know getting hypothermia on at at work is horrible Mm -hmm. but given the scale of the movie shocking that everyone survives
3: yeah i read that a stuntman suffered a broken leg oh on this movie on this movie hopefully he got workman's comp i know i I hope he
2: got that workman's comp million baby i hope he's Mm. i hope he's doing well that is yeah god stunt work is uh so terrifying (sighs) yes okay so i did yeah i wanted to just kind of shout out the rare uh male filmmaker knowing when he's out of his
3: depth yay it shouldn't be impressive but it is. But it
2: kind of is, <laughs> to the point where even Eve Ensler was like, "I was also shocked." He, <laughs> he uh yeah. wanted to do to do that. Mm-hmm. And I like. I think we talked about this in the Babe episode, perhaps I don't remember. But a woman edited this movie. George Miller's partner Margaret Sixell mm-hmm. edited this movie. I think we've brought up on the show a couple different times that uh, women editing a movie of this scale is again quite a big deal and she won an oscar i was gonna say the
3: editing is absolutely incredible
2: yeah it's absolutely it's i also didn't uh that reading about the production of this movie was so like i i did get really excited and like into it because you're just like holy shit any (laughs) epic you're just like this is how how uh where they like didn't have the budget to shoot the scenes at the citadel and Mm. so she edited most of the movie with nothing at the beginning or end. I'm like, that sounds so awful. Like, that sounds, for her, like, that's so
3: stressful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they had to go back and do reshoots and yeah the production went way over budget and you know all the things that you would expect (laughs) when you watch the movie the
2: movie didn't technically make money after like all the stuff incurred Mm -hmm. yeah okay so one i had one last uh behind the scenes thing i wanted to draw attention to please share that i think will hopefully transition into a bigger discussion question mark Mm -hmm. let's see and that is the uh, costume design mm-hmm. of this movie. Uh, it was spearheaded by Jenny Bevan, mm-hmm. who also spoke in this oral history. And it sounds like what I what I thought was really interesting about it is that it sounds as if the character designs and the costume designs since this movie went in, you know was first. Conceptualized in 1987, yeah. like before Zoe Kravitz existed on this physical plane, <laughs> uh-huh. what Furiosa's character was going to look like, it changed quite a bit, and again was like collaborative with the actors. So, uh, Jenny Bevan says quote I am not into fashion wild thing for a costume designer to say love it (laughs) right Uh, I also had
3: that thought as I read that quote
2: (laughs) I am not into fashion and I don't particularly care what people look like the clothes have to come out of the stories they tell. Since she travels long distances, Furiosa needed very practical clothing. And when I met with Charlize, that was one of the things we talked about. That and what on earth should she would she do with her hair? So Because it was Charlize Theron's idea to be the baldest woman in charge. Yes. Uh, which yes. is
3: the episode where we started talking about that, I believe. It is true. Yeah, that's... Uh... One of the things we we did lose RIP uh, by removing that episode from the feed is the origin of the baldest woman in charge. But hey, we're bringing it back.
2: Look, we weren't completely, you know, <laughs> useless in 2016. We were just mostly useless. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I thought that the, the, talking about the costume design is an interesting discussion because I, I feel like i'm interested in your opinion because i think furiosa that's a pretty straightforward discussion like she is i think dressed pretty appropriately for the work that she's doing Mm -hmm. she's you know she's protected it seems like generally like that makes sense and then uh, with the with the women in gauze they're definitely like their bodies are there's more attention drawn to their bodies and Mm. it So it was tricky because I remember the first time we had this discussion, I think that maybe we kind of oversimplified it where it was like, oh, these hot models and they're wearing hot outfits. (laughs) Yes. However, 2022 me is more inclined to say like, well, in story, that does technically make sense given who was dressing them and where they
3: were coming from. Meaning like a Morton Joe would have selected like the most trophiest wives to be his trophy wives and yes, would have put them in these outfits. And then we also see them in chastity belts Mm -hmm. that we see them. The first thing they do when they get any amount of liberation is use bolt cutters to take them off. Take off the chastity belts.
2: Yeah. So I didn't really have... And then when you meet the... Can you say it again? The Volvolini? Volvolini. Oh, okay. Volvolini. Okay. I think I've got it now. (laughs) They. I I think for the most part... I mean, they're basically a a biker gang. And they're dressed like like a a biker gang. And they're doing biker gang shit. (laughs) Biker gang, yes. So that generally makes sense. I think the only character you see... The character who is known as the Valkyrie... Mm. She is nude when you first see her question mark or she's like mostly unclothed and then she put i don't know it didn't particularly bother me i don't know
3: the only thing that really bothers me about any of the costume design or like just kind of general character design is how do the women in gauze never get dirtier than they are at the very beginning considering they're like you know tumbling through sand and marshes and yes but they stay like perfectly coiffed and not without like smudges on their face and that is yeah
2: I think we talked about that in the first time. and and yeah I I agree with you mm-hmm. you would think that it would I mean continuity wise that sounds like someone's worst nightmare but I think in story <laughs> that would have been more appropriate right which i guess kind of does bring me around to there has been some criticism of this movie on uh gender essentialism Mm. so we've discussed this on the show many many times but i don't know it's it is a tricky discussion as it pertains to this movie because in a morton joe's hyper patriarchal capitalist society the way he views women are as baby making machines. When the reality is that not all women have uteruses, have wombs, can have babies. Like mm-hmm. the, the the definition of womanhood that Immortan Joe's society casts them as is extremely. It's just false. Right. And we know that everything Immortan Joe does is deeply wrong. Where it gets confusing for me as I it's at times hard for me to understand what the movie believes
3: which I think is like evidenced in the fact that the again like the characters who we are focusing on and who we're rooting for and who are brought along for the journey are these Western beauty standard attractive people mm-hmm. and then everyone else is either a villain or just gets left out of the narrative and is only there as like world building y set dressing. Yeah. But then but then there's a lot of cool stuff that the movie's doing that subverts a lot of existing right. archetypes and tropes. So I've 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 read arguments on
2: both sides of this that so I've, I've I've read some stuff that argues that the script overly essentializes and defines um, you know is like baby making equals only way to be woman which we know very well is false but then I've also read counter arguments to that argument that are a little more recent interestingly uh and this is yeah I guess for our listeners I'm like Kind of synthesizing this in real time, but sure. um, that argue that the movie actually does push against that essentialism in text through the women of the Volvolini?
3: Uh-huh. Question
2: mark. <laughs> And I will say that Volvolini
3: does not help that argument uh, at all, especially because they're like other oh, name is the many mothers right but, so, but also you don't see any of them as mothers like they're they don't or it, it's not clear they're kind of like this utopian like it just seems like they just
2: yeah they they function as a family, but there doesn't I don't know but then the keeper of the seed that. Like it, it's, I don't know where I land in this argument. However, uh, the counter argument, just to present it, sure, is that the women of the Volvolini, uh, many of whom, I think most of whom are older, are not Mm -hmm. of childbearing age if they ever were um, able to bear children. We don't know, right? right? Who gives a shit? Uh, Leave people alone. But, but I think, you know, because they are older in the eyes of a Morton Joe, that makes them not useful productive members of his society Mm. in the world of the movie and to the women in gauze to mad maximilian to (laughs) furiosa they are very valuable because they are valued for wisdom they are just as capable if not more capable warriors Mm -hmm. and it is very clear in text that they are extremely important to the mission being a success right so
3: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's certainly complicated there are certainly ways to interpret what is presented to us differently i see both sides although i tend to be of the mind (laughs) not us being centrist um i and maybe it's just because I love this movie so much that I'm going to go to bat for it pretty hard, but sure, do I love this movie so much because I think it's doing a lot of good things mm-hmm. that is part of it. So I want to just sort of talk about sort of just like generally speaking here, this movie presents a world in which, you know, this extremely toxic tyrannical leader of a Morton Joe. He's obsessed with war. He's obsessed with controlling people. He owns all of the wealth. He is patriarchy, the guy. The man. Uh He manipulates people. He sees women as property. And yeah, like you said, baby making machines. He sees his son. I mean, I think it's also interesting how he,
2: everyone is a means to an end. The gendered nature of how he views women is... Pointed and particularly brutal, but I, but I, I never like really. I don't know. I hadn't watched this movie with Bechtel Castle and like goggles on in a long time. Mm -hmm. But you see really early on that like, you know, Mad Max is a fucking blood bag. Like he's used for what Morton Joe thinks is valuable about strictly viewing him as an object, Mm -hmm. as well.
3: Right. Yes. And all of these things are shown by the movie as being. (laughs) wrong and toxic and worth fighting against. And of course, sometimes it gets a little on the nose. It's not very subtle, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, the intentions are clear. Yes. What the film is trying to say and do. And just to have an action movie that is a critique of toxic masculinity and like hegemonic masculinity is pretty remarkable since most action movies celebrate toxic masculinity. Yeah. So... That's kind of step one of what we're dealing with here. Absolutely. Um, Because I, even though so many action movies celebrate toxic masculinity, I love the genre. Yeah. But I especially love action movies with substance and interesting world building and that have Mm -hmm. something to say. So that's why I've really latched on to this one. Mm. Now, Furiosa... There are different interpretations of The kind of like Max and Furiosa Dynamic from a character function Point of view I consider them to be dual protagonists And they share Protagonist uh, functions Actually, actually Caitlin,
2: um, one of them is a deuteragonist I would actually <laughs> call Max A deuteragonist um, And in this essay I'll talk about Why that's screwed up because it's his name In the movie <laughs> Um Sorry, continue. I
3: I agree with you. So uh, just to come at this from a screenwriting point of view, um, not that I would ever, you know, mention a master's degree that I have in screenwriting from Boston University. Certainly not on your birthday, no less. Certainly not on my birthday. But they share protagonist functions in the sense that Furiosa has the... Stronger motivation, Mm -hmm. the more distinct goal, which is the thing that drives the narrative Mm -hmm. and the higher stakes. Mm -hmm. Whereas Max has the more significant character arc. Uh, You know, he goes from being this like borderline animal survival boy to someone with like human empathy. Mm -hmm. Both characters are equally active and the story is told from their point of view in pretty equal distribution. So Mm -hmm. that's why I contend that they are dual protagonists, Um, which means we have one of the protagonists in the movie being a woman, which is pretty rare for an action movie. Sure. Furiosa, especially, of course, because she is one of two leading characters, is participating in the action and fighting. And again, that makes sense because this is an action movie just as much as Max Mm -hmm. more so even in the first act because Max is restrained and chained to a car. So he can't do anything for a while. Mm -hmm. There are moments where she gets to take the lead because she has more skills than him. There's that scene where she shoots the guys on the motorcycle that are coming after them because she has like better marksmanship and also she's done this before, and he hasn't like that's established
2: really early on, where like she this is like not quite a day at the office for
3: her, but like you know i don't she's well, she's
2: more experienced and like
3: he's like a cop, so he he in theory has like experience shooting a gun but like
2: oh no i didn't mean like shit but i i meant like in terms of knowing the war rig knowing the oh routes, okay the sure, pass, sure, shit sure. like that mm-hmm. like she yeah like has more knowledge like i feel like it's presented very early on that she has more relevant information and skills
3: than he does for the situation they're in mm-hmm, but true. they're both very skilled right, 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 right okay yes yes um right and she just like has power over him in knowing the, like, code, the Da Vinci code that unlocks the kill
2: switches or whatever. Do you remember that famous scene where Furiosa leans over to Mad Max and she says, Apple. <laughs> and then he goes, Oh, my
3: name's Max. I admit it. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> he has to tell her. She's like, here's how to disable the kill switches. It's A-P-P-L-E. And then he goes, Wow! I can't believe I read 600 pages to get to this. <laughs> oh, God. So, uh yeah, and it's just—I mean, just the fact that she is driving the war rig for a large chunk of the movie. I hate that that is such a big deal, but it's a big deal. It well, is a big deal. One of the best hand-to-hand combat fight scenes in an action movie that I've ever seen. Is that early one between Furiosa and Max? Mm -hmm. We have a man and a woman fighting, which, as we've discussed on the show, does not happen often. Nope. We've discussed how, in a lot of action movies where, like the rare cases where a woman is allowed to participate in the action, she is often fighting other women. So to see this, like, very equally balanced fight between a man and a woman where they are both extremely capable is, again, shouldn't be groundbreaking, but I'm like, oh my gosh. It is. so cool to see. It's wild. And and, uh, something else I I liked
2: about this fight that felt a little unusual watching it this time around was I feel like you rarely see a male action protagonist fight because they're very obviously scared. Like Mm. Max is really... Scared in that scene and like i like he's behaving brutally yeah but it's i i feel like you know a slight tip of that whatever to tom hardy like you can tell that it's like he's not doing the like hyper masculine action star thing he's like afraid right and that is why he's fighting and i feel like you don't that's just not something you get from a male action hero very often
3: true I'm about to go into a bunch of ways in which the female characters in this movie subvert a lot of action movie tropes, but there's a lot of stuff also that's subverted about Max's character. Yeah. Like, I yeah, mean, he's like what you said. He's got PTSD
2: that really strongly affects him. And I mean, I guess that that's not unheard of in this genre, but to have it presented as something as scary and debilitating as it is to him, I feel like is unusual. I don't,
3: maybe I I don't. I think so. I think also that, again, him being kind of like incapacitated for the first act of the movie and not being allowed or able to participate in the fighting and action is a subversion. Mm -hmm. I think that his arc being that he learns empathy mm-hmm. it is an, a very interesting arc for a male action hero mm-hmm. i don't know just like a lot of fascinating things to me but not as interesting as furiosa baby not as interesting as furiosa so back to that hand-to-hand yes. combat fight between max and furiosa also during that fight the the women in gauze though not trained warriors at all, they are still participating in the action. For example, mm. one of them tosses a weapon to Furiosa for her to use against Max. At different points, they kind of rally together to either pull Max or Nux away from Furiosa. Yeah. Um, there are other moments throughout the rest of the story where they are- Zoe Kravitz
2: does know how to shoot a gun for- Yes.
3: You know, like someone does- Yeah. She knows, Yeah. She knows how to like load- reload a weapon she knows how to like she knows and this doesn't like seem that impressive but also like if someone's like here's a pile of a bunch of different bullets here's a pile of a bunch of different guns match the guns to the bullets i can't do uh, i wouldn't know where to begin yeah Um, no fucking clue there it's it's like it's cool like there
2: and i i forget how we view this viewed this the first time around but watching it back you're like oh this is like having the women in gauze i feel like in a less capable team's hands could either have gone super mary sue or Mm. completely sidelined those characters in the action but i feel like the action you get from them is significant it's narratively impactful and it's not like ridiculous like they're a fucking swat team because like that wouldn't make sense with their lived experience.
3: Right. It tracks with their background. They are able to do things like use bolt cutters. They create right. diversions to help them escape dangerous situations. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. they are given opportunities to be able to do things that impact the story in ways that other action movies don't afford those opportunities to women, usually. Yeah. And then like we've mentioned they team up with the volvolini the the many mothers and you know what
2: it's reminding me of it's reminding me of the volturi from fucking twilight
3: oh my gosh
2: the italian vampire team i was like i was like it sounds Uh like vagina pasta but it also sounds like something else it sounds like the volturi led by i believe dakota
3: fanning that sounds right <sighs> if memory serves. Anyways, sorry, that was that was bugging me. Now I now I remember. I'm glad we I'm glad we worked through that. Yeah. So they meet up with the Vovolini and like the number of female characters doubles or maybe even more than doubles. And then it's like they're all
2: trained Warriors in a way that makes total sense. Right.
3: Woohoo. There's a lot of cool stuff happening there. And then, more specifically, so I would recommend a video essay series from Innuendo Studios that was written and narrated by Ian Danskin, who is a cis man. But he does make a lot of points that I he does. agree with and, and and brings a lot of insights. He does say Deuteragamus quite he a bit, d- he though. D- and... He does. And I will forgive him for that. Yeah, um, it's a good series. <laughs> <laughs> the video essay series is called Bringing Back What's Stolen, Fury Road and the Avenging Feminine. So this video series has a lot of insight about how female characters in Fury Road compare to female characters in other action movies, or he keeps calling them violent movies. Cause he also introduces some examples from like horror slasher movies. Sure. Um, so if you're just kind of like using the umbrella of violent movies, um, a lot of tropes and archetypes have emerged over the years that Fury Road tends to avoid. Mm-hmm. So I'll just kind of quickly go through this I recommend watching the whole series but it pointed out a lot of things that I wasn't really able to articulate very uh clearly so yeah it's very very streamlined it's it's really good so one of the archetypes of female characters in action slash violent movies is the innocent Um, basically when a woman is captured damseled brutalized to provide stakes for the male hero we talk about this all the time it often takes the form of a woman being captured and damseled and needing to be saved by a man obviously furiosa doesn't fall into this archetype and neither do the wives uh because even though furiosa is taking them away from a morton joe to safety as we've discussed they're not helpless they are participating in the action yeah and it was also like
2: i i thought it was a smart subtle choice that it was their idea right. for it to happen in the first place. Like they weren't just like, doi, I want, like they, they were highly motivated to get out of their situation and they sought out someone who could help them. Like that's right. yeah.
3: huge. Like literally graffitiing on their walls. Ugh, the the reason it. saying like, our babies will not be warlords. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not things. That whole, I mean, and that's, I, there's some,
2: I think that, some of the issues we've discussed as it pertains to like gender i feel like part of it is because there is that really strong like seizing the means of production energy to this movie like where for the majority of like the characters in this movie the means of production is like reclaiming your own body mm-hmm. which is like you know by liberating themselves from a morton joe and refusing to have his children like that is their means of production same thing Mm -hmm. goes for like max like the difference between max being used as a blood bag for nicholas holt and max giving his blood to furiosa at the end is like he sees the means of his own production it's the same thing but the context is uh, oh yeah anyways
3: wow the next archetype that this video series identifies is they call it the vasquez named after the character vasquez in aliens. Yeah. Listen to that episode for our discussion on that character specifically. There's there's not enough a lot going to, on. Yeah. There's a lot going on. But it's the female action movie archetype where the woman is one of the guys and mm. ends up embodying traits of toxic masculinity, which is again subverted in this movie because Fury Road explores a more nuanced and less binary spectrum of gender, yeah. of masculinity and femininity. That, I mean, that was wild in that
2: particular video section with that super cut of all the different women protagonists that have said, suck my dick. <laughs> in different, <laughs> right. you're like, oh, yeah yeah i guess that that is a uh that is a thing that happens quite a bit uh <laughs>
3: in a certain era of mood, but also like still kind of now anyway sometimes yeah one of these archetypes has been dubbed the dominatrix uh this is the highly violent and also highly sexualized Female character, she is often the villain or anti-hero. Old school catwoman stuff. Exactly. Like leans into the hypersexualization of women's bodies. I maintain that even though we see, especially the the women in gauze, they are arguably kind of scantily clad. Mm-hmm. They're not sexualized in an exploitative way i would agree with that you could you could make an argument against that and i and i would listen and probably agree with some of it but i think that there is an art there's definitely an argument for it but it it just it's hard to describe
2: it doesn't feel like the movie is trying to titillate with shots of their right body i always think of the shot of like pregnant rosie huntington whiteley and the hose where you're like a still of that I could see the argument, but
3: presented in context, I didn't feel like it was supposed to be a titillating shot. Right, right. The video essay points out that most other action movie directors would frame that scene in question, which is the one where Max comes upon the war rig for the first time. When it's like (laughs) cartoon wolf awooga eyes, and then it would because they're like (laughs) hosing each other down, they're like cleaning off after this first big chase, they are drinking water, you know, all this stuff. That's why they say so fresh face throughout the movie. They uh occasionally rinse off, they're taking baths, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that's true. Um. The video essay points out that like most other directors, and I'm especially thinking of like how Michael Bay would shoot this, but they would like shoot that scene like a wet t-shirt contest. Yeah. But this scene is mostly like the women at a far distance or like tight shots of their face Mm -hmm. in a way that we're not seeing like disembodied, you know, like breasts and asses and stuff like that yeah so uh that's another subversion um the next action movie archetype is the mama bear which is typically a pretty feminine woman who will become violent in order to protect her children Think, like, Ripley in Aliens. And think Gina Davis's character in The Long Kiss Goodnight. Um, I can't. I haven't seen it. Oh. <laughs> okay. Then don't think about it. Okay, I won't. The video essay goes into detail about how Fury Road subverts this in that even though there is the idea of, like, motherhood presented in that, like, well, the women... It's more rooted in our refusal
2: to, uh, like... Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's more rooted in, I mean, and... Full disclosure we are uh, we're recording this in a big week for bodily autonomy talk. Uh-huh <laughs> but it is like the most uh, one of the most dystopian examples of trying to regain your bodily autonomy mm-hmm. by refusing to have a child that you don't want that was a product of assault like right. Period, yeah. Yes.
3: Mm -hmm. Bad week, bad week. It's a really bad week. Yeah. The next archetype um, being the final girl, this is already a familiar thing, Mm. most common in horror slash slasher movies. This video essay examines how kind of the idea of specialness and being, quote, not like the other girls Mm -hmm. is the thing that enables the final girl to survive, where in this movie... Fury Road subverts this by not presenting anyone as, like, more deserving or more special uh, than anyone else. Although, see my point again about the trophy wives being rescued, but not the women who are being milked.
2: Yeah, I don't think that that's universally so, true. But right. of the characters we know, I we I are guess that exactly. is generally true. Yeah, and I also thought it was like a a. a just a choice that made sense in the genre that, I mean, none of the, none of the, we don't lose the women in gauze, but there are a few of the Voltori uh, who <laughs> the vampires. Yes. The Italian vampires that, uh, do die in, in battle. And, uh, and there's also plenty of war boys who die in battle. Certainly, and I don't think that, I mean, we haven't really brought up Nux too much there's not too much to talk about there but i do Mm. think that it's interesting that he ties into this theme of redemption that the the movie has that um it would be it would have been very very easy for for them
3: to just kill him and they consider it like they furiosa has a knife to his throat at one point
2: yeah but but after the women in gauze sort of talk it out a little bit and, and furiosa weighs in they I think it's Rosie Huntington-Whiteley who who ultimately says, like, basically, this is a kid who's been indoctrinated into this fucking horrible mm-hmm. place and sort of suggests that killing him is not the way to go, which ends up serving the story. And it, it right. I, I, I like that this movie is... You know, there's like the, whatever, restorative justice is at play for Mm -hmm. a lot of it. Because even though Nux still dies, he like is redeemed by, and and in a way that isn't like an annoying movie redemption. It's Mm -hmm. not like Adam Driver's Star Wars redemption. (laughs) Uh You know, it's. It's like, it's efficient. You know that he has been indoctrinated. He makes an emotional connection with one of the women in gauze, the Riley Keough character, who, I mean, it just sounds like he's basically shown mercy and like empathy as opposed to gaslighting and a fucking spray can to the face for the first time in his life. You could argue that having only women display those qualities is pointed, but i i thought it worked in the movie
3: but that's also an interesting arc for him to have too yeah, where like I agree, he starts yeah. out as being you know this product of his environment of mm-hmm. being like extremely radicalized in this very toxic warmongering way mm-hmm. and then as soon as one person shows him any amount of empathy and patience Riley Keough literally says like oh that sucks and he's like
2: (laughs) like, (laughs) 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 it blows his mind he's like wait someone isn't yelling at me
3: right and calling me mediocre don't call Nicholas Holt mediocre (laughs) but yeah like his arc revolving around similar to Max's like Being responsive to empathy or like having a a healthier relationship with empathy is both of what the main male characters arcs revolve around, which is, I think, really interesting and cool. Um, I agree. The final archetype as discussed in this video essay is the rape revenger which again deals more commonly with like rape revenge horror movies Mm -hmm. but based on the context of and like backstory of the women in gauze it's applicable here where the the general trope slash archetype presents women in a usually very exploitative way that kind of revels in the physical and or sexual violence that happens toward the women in these stories and revels in their suffering. Mm -hmm. Whereas Fury Road opts not to show any of this exploitative violence and suffering. Mm -hmm. We understood that it has happened to them, but any of the violence toward women in the movie is just the women actively engaging in battle as warriors. And not that kind of like exploitative violence towards women. And the video ends with a proposal of like a new and like a new future archetype that Furiosa falls into, which is called the avenging feminine in which, uh, you know, a woman takes back what is hers. Mm -hmm. She fights because it's her right to fight against men who tell her it's not her right. Among other traits, um, I found the whole thing really insightful. I don't necessarily drive with every single moment, but um, I found it generally uh, really cool. Yeah. We'll link it um, if anyone wants to check it out, but it helped me because like it identified action movie tropes that are ascribed to female characters Mm -hmm. that I just like, didn't have like the vocabulary for and stuff. So yeah, I just, I found it really helpful and I agree with uh, most of the analysis of how, Fury Road subverts those archetypes, mm-hmm. so it's true. That's my little piece about that, and I think all of it is Good. very cool. And again, largely why I love this movie
2: so much. It's perfect. I'm I'm rictus erectus just hearing it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's my little contribution. <laughs> Thank you. What a Happy what a birthday. wonderful birthday gift. <laughs> Happy birthday! Yeah, I mean, Furiosa is just like a fucking awesome character for for all the reasons you describe, and also, I mean, just a very. Uh, I, I feel like it's uh, fun to see a character of any gender kind of arrive fully formed uh like when you meet furiosa she's highly motivated she's one of the only characters that we meet who already has a vested interest in people who are not just herself it's kind of her and the women and gauze who care about each other mm-hmm. um and that that isn't because i feel like sometimes empathy and this isn't like the worst trope in the entire world but it is a trope where empathy and emotional intelligence is more often attributed to women characters sure it's not a trope that comes from nowhere i would say uh (laughs) agree but but it is a common trope and i think sometimes in movies it's applied rather sloppily where it's like women's intuition and shit like that sure but with furiosa i mean you get explicit context as to why she has a collective mindset and because that's how she was raised she was raised in a feminist utopia that prioritized the collective so mm-hmm. the fact that she retains those values
3: as an adult makes total sense and but also there are moments where she does not display empathy like the part where she's about to kill Nux uh mm-hmm. there's there's the part where she's like Rosie uh, rolled off the
2: the war rig we gotta keep going baby <laughs> we gotta keep going right which is like, like that's just pragmatic shit unfortunately for Rosie <laughs> glad she made it exactly
3: but it's something so I've talked about this on the show before, but something that drives me absolutely wild about horror movies, especially, mm-hmm. and it's usually like the final girl, but you see this in some action movies too and other genres, but like whoever the most important female character of the movie is, she has so much empathy that she is put in a position where she has the opportunity to badly maim and or kill the person who is trying to kill her but because she has so much empathy she's like i can't do it i can't i mean which which i think in in certain you know that i feel like that's
2: super case to case but can be super sloppy and tropey if it just seems like it's because it's because girl girl is nice girl
3: has feeling right right and that and that's yeah. some women are fucking heartless
2: (laughs) and you should remember that
3: but um Often when I see it, it's it's very infuriating <laughs> infuriosa furiosa <Yeah. laughs> because of the way it's presented. Um, yeah. And in this case, we see Furiosa killing people all the time because they are actively trying to kill her. So... Um, right. But I, she kind of... But, but I also appreciate that she
2: doesn't... I don't know. No one... I, I guess this is like part of why they're the hero. Like no one is killing for fun they're killing for survival um mm-hmm. where like Immortem Joe is killing for it seems say like, his name again Jamie Immortem mm-hmm. Joe mm-hmm. Ellen McGregor uh Volvolorini <laughs> what if I just passed out I just got a nosebleed on the zoom call
3: I think you called Nox at one point as well. <laughs>
2: Knox, LA, the place I write for. Um, yeah.
3: Look. Look. They're
2: difficult names. There's they're,
3: too many characters. There are a lot of characters and they all have pretty unfamiliar names. They have so very
2: genre name. Okay. I uh, <laughs> uh, called out on your birthday. Can't believe it. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I truly forget what I was talking about, I, but I'm sure I, I was in the, was the middle of. I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> good job, Jamie. You made a good point. Uh, oh, something I wanted to bring up really quick. Mm. I mean, I guess it just like hits home again. It's just a scene that I had forgotten about. I hadn't seen this movie in maybe two years, mm. and I was like, oh boy, uh, when the uh, dead baby, the dead baby, there is a dead. Baby. I don't really I don't have a Bechtel cast galaxy brain point to make about it, but I do. I mean, I guess that that just that like hit home super hard, not subtly at all, how little life is valued when it doesn't ha- when it doesn't specifically benefit the upper class. And because no one gives a shit if uh, Rosie Huntington-Whiteley is okay it's like is the Mm. product because they view children as products and a future war boy you know and so i just uh, forgot about that scene and i Mm -hmm. uh find it disturbing every single
3: time again another reminder of what is happening in this country right now yeah there's a lot about this movie that
2: the more time that passes you're just like whoa (laughs) i mean even just like yeah a a radicalized force of young men you're like oh, <laughs> mm. oh no mm. yikes uh, I, I, uh anyways anyway you know it's 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 still fiction uh for now so that's good mm-hmm. yeah did you have anything else you wanted to talk about
3: not really i just want to give a shout out to miss giddy i yeah. wish we just knew more about her. her character amazing line reads <laughs> Great, I love her tattoos. Yep. There was a scene that was shot but deleted from the movie in which Angharad's body and Miss Giddy were left to die and be eaten by crows, which I think would have been just like a very unnecessarily violent scene toward Miss Giddy specifically. Yeah. That was removed. Honestly, weird that it was even considered <laughs> To be included in the movie, but yeah, um, I did not know that. That's very gross. Yes, um, so that was no good. But uh, Miss Giddy is just a- she seems like a prime candidate for a uh, a limited series. That's mm. a character I would watch a whole series about the the marvelous Miss Giddy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, that that's I where you took it.
2: <laughs> You're like as she does do
3: stand up, and she's a stand
2: up comic at the Citadel. Yeah, she d- the the comedy Citadel. <laughs> She headlines the comedy Citadel and it's, hey, uh, I'm
3: running my type five at the Citadel tonight. want to come just like a goofy like it's real hard being a
2: woman in comedy. Right. And she's just said the fucking Citadel. Uh, <laughs> God. Uh. Anyway, wish I knew more about wish we knew more about her character. I think we just built out some pretty let's let's uh, mm. let's run that past Eve Ensler. But I think that she's going
3: to love it. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is all I had. Did you have anything else? No, that's uh, that's that's about
2: all I had as well. Um, I really enjoyed this movie, and I really enjoyed uh, talking about it.
3: I'm so glad to hear that.
2: But here's my question, Caitlin. What? Does it pass the baton? Huh?
3: It does a lot. Yes. Uh, Furiosa talks to the various women in gauze they talk to each other they all talk to different the, members of the volturi of talk the to each other Volt- <laughs> yes um i don't have a handle on what most of their names are yes but i think they are given names like in the script and in, in the credits they're all and stuff pretty like i mean i would say
2: that they count as names because uh, male characters are also given like weird titles as names, like the Bullet Farmer, I would consider it to be a character's name. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, yeah. In the same way that, yeah, the People Eater, the Doof Warrior, which Mm -hmm. you gotta love, the Doof Warrior. Um, I didn't love the Doof
3: Warrior the first time around, but this time I loved the Doof Warrior. The Doof is cool. Speaking of media tests, Mm -hmm. I wanted to call attention really quick to the Furiosa test. Oh yeah, I forgot about this. This is a funny (laughs) one. So obviously, so this movie provides the origin for this test. The test was proposed by Twitter user Sean M. Puckett in June 2015.
2: God, what a sentence. Who
3: said, proposed the Furiosa test. Your movie slash game slash book slash play passes if it incites men's rights dipshits to boycott. Because what happened when this movie was released... Oh, yeah a bunch of mras were like what what is this alfred molina what's that (laughs) (laughs) what's that then (laughs) Uh, alfred molina who famously denounces men's rights activism king king of the world and you heard it here first on our show it's true (laughs) people don't talk about that enough i think they don't talk about it nearly enough they don't
2: really talk about it (laughs) maybe (laughs) at all it doesn't really come up it's
3: (laughs) sort of only just us who brings it up (laughs) but the mras they just threw a little fit as they often do when they realized what this movie was about they deemed it feminist propaganda they you know demanded people boycott the movie they still do this but I feel like the mid 2010s was when this
2: like this particular brand of like, ang- like masculine anger was like they were really in their bag because like Ghostbusters came oh, out. Gosh. This yeah. came out. It ruined like, my it was childhood.
3: Just...
2: <gasps> like you're just like, oh my, I feel like everyone had like one man in their life that was like, oh, I didn't realize that you're uh, the, mo- the pettiest kind of person that exists. Uh,
3: yes. Fascinating. <laughs> Anyways, mm-hmm. uh, what about our nipple scale, though? Zero to five nipples based on how the movie fares when examining it through an intersectional feminist lens.
2: Oh me, oh my. Um, I, okay, I think, I think I've got i got a number in mind. Go, go, go
3: off birthday. I, thank you. Ms. Birthday. Birthday's first. Yes, birthday um, first always. <laughs> <laughs> I am leaning. Somewhere between a three and a half and a four. I might split the diff and go 3.75. I think the way the movie treats disability and atypical bodies is unforgivable. I think that the way the movie centers whiteness and centers people who adhere to Western beauty standards as being those most worthy of being rescued and uh, escaping to safety and survival Mm -hmm. is dated and unfortunate. And there was so much more room for more meaningful inclusion, Mm -hmm. things like that, which we've discussed that bring the rating down. But there is also so much that the movie subverts tropes it avoids and things that it actually does actively do Mm -hmm. to push the needle forward in terms of how women especially are treated and the role that they play in an action movie. Because of that, I'm going to go with, yeah, I think a Mm 3.75. I'll give one to Furiosa, one to the women who are left behind, one to the women in gauze. Mm. And I'll give my three quarters nipple to the Voltori, a.k.a. the Volvolini.
2: <sighs> okay the ravioli you know we could keep going we could keep going the tortellini, a lot of...
3: the tortellini. oh
2: my god my favorite moment in all of um history mm-hmm. is do you remember no i guess no every time i you didn't watch spongebob no um, sorry. there's a great moment where i forget what the context of, of it is but someone spells squidward's name wrong and he goes squidward Tortellini and it's so funny. Because
3: his name's Squidward <laughs> Tentacles. Uh. Sort of like the character Tentacles in The Legend of Titanic, my favorite the animated blueprint. film of all time.
2: The blueprint. Yeah. yeah. Good. oh God,
3: I love squidward.
2: okay um <laughs> I'm gonna give the movie uh' I'll, I'm gonna I'll, I'll be generous because I feel uh residual guilt for how uh irrationally hard I was on this movie the in the, our first uh, run at this episode look six years ago We're all works in progress six years ago to be mm-hmm. fair yes I was I was 12 <laughs> years old. I'm 18 now so I think I know wow. a thing or two
3: okay, good I am I'm gen Z. What can I say? Um, well, uh, since it, it's my birthday today, so I have actually aged into being a boomer. Wow. That's how, that's how that works.
2: So there there comes a day where we all become boomers, so, unfortunately. Become boomers. I'm Benjamin Buttoning. I'm Gen Z. Uh, cool. <laughs> but I'll, I'll go four. I totally agree with uh, the... The way that uh, this movie treats disabled bodies and atypical bodies in general, this movie's views on fatness in particular, are Mm -hmm. um, all extremely dated uh, for a movie that came out less than 10 years ago, which speaks to how underdeveloped those discussions are, and and also, um, you know, a positive spin, how far conversations around that have come. And I would be interested because there is supposed to be a prequel with Anya Taylor-Joy as Young Furiosa uh, coming out in 2024. I would be curious, because George Miller has a somewhat good record on course-correcting past mistakes, I wonder if that will be something that is course-corrected in uh, another installment of this franchise, we will see. Curious to see, um, <laughs> curiosa. I'm a, <laughs> That's I'm a me. little curiosa, honey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, the the treatment of disability and race, in particular, are were not good at the time and did not age well, um, and yeah. should always be criticized. And to this movie's credit, I I do think that this movie's good reception this movie being embraced by action fans Mm. is like a huge i would imagine i mean it's still kind of early to tell obviously the movie came out seven years ago Seven years
3: ago yeah but even in
2: that time i feel like you can trace that it's made a difference in the genre and it's made a difference to fans of action movies of like what an action hero looks and behaves and like what they're capable of i feel like furiosa is like a huge kind of game changer for this genre and it is a difficult genre to game change uh, because of
3: all the loaded
2: masculinity that it's
3: known for there's a lot of baggage
2: yeah so for its faults, of which there are many and we've discussed them i do think that it was a huge step forward for the genre in many ways um i generally like how the the women in the movie who we get to know um which is the women we get to know versus the women we don't as we discussed is Mm -hmm. very intentional and pointed the women we do get to know I, i feel like are all given effective story arcs i thought it was really cool that george miller empowered his actors to develop their own characters was open to feedback brought in a consultant like Mm -hmm. shit you just don't hear about male hunters of this kind of magnitude doing not giving him a fucking crown or anything but i think it just just another good example setting thing Mm -hmm. to have done i think this movie is awesome i really enjoy watching it and um thank you caitlin for first of all choosing it Uh, for
3: your birthday episode and for
2: bearing with me as I uh, grew as a person and grew to appreciate it. So
3: look four nippies. I knew it would happen. I knew that you would undergo a significant character arc, much like Max. does no not max <laughs> i don't like max um he's my
2: least favorite character in the movie. no that's there's a, <laughs> a lot of worse characters but anyways i'm gonna give my nipples i'm gonna have one to furiosa i'm gonna give one to zoe kravitz in the bullet bag mm. i'm gonna give one to the keeper of the seeds and i'm gonna give one to mrs oh what's her name mrs miss giddy miss giddy miss giddy mm
3: love it and that's the episode folks it certainly is uh you can you know do all the stuff hey you know what since it's my birthday yeah i'm gonna not only suggest but maybe even demand that you oh wow (laughs) oh shit holy (laughs) shit uh, this is me being absolutely fucked up as promised i'm Um, so scared right now (laughs) (laughs) would you give me a little follow on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Caitlin Durante because uh, the more followers I have on social media platforms, the more validated I feel as a human being. And that is the sad state of the world.
2: (laughs) I think that that's super healthy and I feel the exact same way. (laughs) Um, Everyone follow Caitlin on every platform available. You have TikTok
3: too. I do have TikTok and I, um, I have not really posted much except for a couple Titanic-related TikToks, although I started doing this new thing on my Instagram stories in which I recap a movie speaking as quickly as I can and including as much detail as I can in 15 seconds or less. So I might add those to my TikTok to really, you know, because it's all about generating new content, you know? um wow so. she says she's
2: a boomer but she's sounding like a
3: teenager okay. what um what? <laughs> so definitely you know whatever i don't care about tiktok right now but i mean ask me again in a year and i'll be like follow me on tiktok <laughs> um but certainly follow me on instagram and and twitter mm-hmm. also follow jamie on those on those platforms hey why
2: don't you do that for once in your life um <laughs> yeah and then also listen to ghost church that's my new show that's coming out right now it's about uh it's about my my uh week in Casadega, florida and the history of american spiritualism aka ghost church as i like to call it i'm having a lot of fun making it it's also produced by producer of the Bechtel Cast, Sophie Lichterman, mm-hmm. and uh, Sophie. why don't you why don't you head on over and uh, give that a listen? Yeah. We just and while you love it, creating content so much. We just love it. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, uh, Elon Musk's Twitter, as I like to call it now. Oh. Uh, Jamie Loftus, help on Twitter, Jamie Cray superstar on Instagram, and then follow the Bechtel Cast while you're on those to cursed websites okay yeah at
3: Bechtelcast, oh and uh a nice little birthday gift for me would be if you give the podcast a little rate and review go for it preferably a favorable one like a you know a five <laughs> nipple if you dare yeah, if you if you hated this
2: episode actually please skip nothing. it oh yeah. i'm still i'm still traumatized from the zootopia blowback of oh my god they're like oh it's just oh whoa, rabbits can't even be cops anymore according to these broads i'm like oh my goodness gracious take a seat folks
3: take a, no one's just... listening
2: to the episode at this point they're like the episode ended 10 minutes
3: ago <laughs> it's been over two hours and uh, we simply can't stop talking Yup. typical women right always blabbing 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 pee pee poo poo uh
2: two things women love to do uh and then follow our patreon aka Patreon, if you want mm-hmm. more of that hilarious <laughs> s-tier banter that's patreon.com slash Cast. you want an episode on babe yeah truly that's where you'll find it that's where you're gonna fucking find it um and <laughs> we are uh we're we're doing some of caitlin's picks on the Patreon this month we're
3: doing face slash off
2: Mm-hmm. and we are doing what's the other one we're doing Top Gun
3: not because Top I vouch gun. for the movie for either of these movies it was honestly just like okay the new Top Gun movies coming out what better time I guess than to cover the original Top Gun and then also I was like what's another like big loud action goofy action movie that mm-hmm. we can fold into the mix and uh, I was like face off I think would be a lot of fun for us to be like what the fuck is this movie? Love it. So that's the plan, folks. And that's the plan, and if you don't like it, go to hell,
2: to (laughs) quote um, Kate Winslet in Titanic.
3: Well, (laughs) let's get out of here. Go to hell, or uh, follow me eternal on the highways of Valhalla. See you in Valhalla, everyone. Go to Valhalla. I can't deal
2: with Valhalla, (laughs) we both saw the Northmen. I've had enough of Valhalla. (sighs) Goodbye, episode over.
0: slash iHeart.